hold, I'm going to set my timer here. It won't work. And if I don't set this timer, sorry, just pa- Well, you know what? No timer today. Right, this is going to be long for you guys, right? Phone doesn't work. We'll figure it out. We'll just preach. We'll preach, preach, preach. Hey, uh, my intro actually was to tell you uh, that we are uh, about to open up the back and do restore. But I've already told you that. So then uh, I don't have to tell you that again. So uh, I don't know what to do besides go, hey, Acts 25, let's get in it, right? Let's go. Acts chapter 25, we're going to rock and roll. Uh, if this is your first time uh, back from, your, uh, from last year, this is your New Year's resolution, and you're in it, let me just tell you, uh, we're, we're so excited you're here. Uh, we are a movement for all people. That's people um, who have been running after Jesus for their whole life and people who are just beginning to explore what this relationship with Jesus is, and so we are excited this morning that we would be the church uh, that you would pick. Now, I already told you we're moving in the back. What you need to know about New Year's resolutions is that for about half the country, I don't think they start until there's like a full week of January, and since this was like a half week, um, that means we have hundreds more people coming back next week, and so the Holy Spirit right now is urging some of you in this moment that you're going to be moving to the video venue, to the sanctuary, and uh, just let the Holy Spirit just do His work there. Don't fight that, all right? Acts chapter 25. Last week, we started this two-week series, and Festus brought Paul to trial once again. Paul has been on trial. He's been in prison at this point for two-plus years, and now Festus brings him. He brings the Jews from Jerusalem. They try him. What they realize is that Paul has the right to be released. He has the, the right. What's, what he deserves is to be released from jail. The problem is, is that Paul has the responsibility to the gospel to take it all the way to Rome. And so last week, I don't have time to recap everything, but last week what we talked about was that our responsibility to the gospel far outweighs our right to anything. So this week, Paul's in prison still, and we're going to pick it up Festus is the governor, Acts chapter 25, verse 13. If you haven't found it yet, we'll put it on the screen for you. Uh, And you can take that Bible in front of you home and practice all week. And next week, come back and just put a bookmark in it at Acts 26. You'll look really sharp. Today, we're going to talk about Acts 26. Boom, there, right? So just go ahead and cheat. It's fine, right? Acts 25, verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. So Agrippa is the king of the Jews. Now, ironically, Jerusalem is actually not in his jurisdiction. Um, king Agrippa's jurisdiction is really like Galilee, like this area that Jesus came from near the Sea of Galilee, this little small area. And so he's the king from there. He brings his uh, sister and travel companion, Bernice. They come to town with one goal. Their goal is to kiss up to Festus because Festus is the new governor And as long as Festus likes Agrippa, then Agrippa gets to stay in power. If Festus doesn't like Agrippa, then they just fire him and get the next guy willing to pay for the job. So King Agrippa's coming to town uh, to do a little brown nosing. That's how they call it back in the day. Verse 14, and they stayed there many days. Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid before them. So when they came together... I made no delay. On the next day, I took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the, men, the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. So they're just hanging out, and Festus goes, Man, Agrippa, I need to tell you about this guy named Paul. He's been in jail here for over two years. The Jews came to try him, and I let him try him, and I, there's no evils. You know, I'm sure Festus was thinking that they were going to come to the table and talk about some evils that Paul had done against Rome. And Festus is just bewildered that they would come and and accuse this man but have nothing to accuse him of. Verse 19, rather they had certain points to dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. I just want you to notice there's a subtle shift in language in Festus here. Festus says there was a G, there's a guy named Jesus 
who was dead and Paul says is alive. Festus very well could have said, there's this guy named Jesus who is dead, but Paul thinks he's alive. I just want you to see the subtle influence that Paul is having, even on people who don't believe him at all. That Jesus was dead, but Paul asserts is alive. Verse 20. Being at a loss for how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he would want to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will. So Agrippa, think about Agrippa's heard about this Paul, this guy that's been leading all these Jewish men and women to follow the way, to become followers of Jesus. And so Agrippa's going, I've heard about this guy. Like, I'd like to see him. It's like a little bit of like a show and tell type moment, right? So like, I'd like to see him. Can you make that happen? And Festus goes, yeah, watch this. Tomorrow we'll do it, right? A little flexing. Festus is like, I'm, I'm, I'm the best of us, right? Verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came up with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who were present with him. You see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me. Both in Jerusalem and here. Shouting that he ought not to live any longer. So what he says is, hey look, there's this, he, said, they, he says, they, they've come to me. These Jewish people have come to me and said, this guy ought not to live any longer. What's he saying? He's saying the same thing they said about Jesus in Luke. Remember, they're saying, get rid of him. They should be off the face of the earth. So Festus says, these people come to me, and they're just complaining that we should kill this guy named Paul. Verse 25, but I found that I have done nothing deserving death. And he himself appealed to the emperor, so I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing to write my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. So he says, Agrippa, you're the king of the Jews, so you are what you should be an expert on Judaism. And Festus goes, I'm about to, I'm about to write this letter. I'm about to write this letter to Caesar, and I'm about to tell Caesar, I'm sending you this guy to be tried, and they, the Jewish people says he should be executed, and I've got to write you a letter, but all Festus has so far is, dear Caesar, I send you Paul, dot, dot, dot. I don't know what to tell him. Festus like, I don't have a clue what to tell him. So he gets Agrippa, who's the king of the Jews, and goes, you got to help me out here. And this is what he ends his, his, his statement with, verse 27. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Here's what Festus says. It's unfair if I send Paul to Caesar, but I don't say why I've sent him. But he says, he says it's, un, it's unfair if I accuse Paul and send him to Caesar with a letter that says, Dear Caesar, I don't think this guy's done anything wrong, but I sent him to you anyway. Here's the question I asked last week, and we want to answer this week. Um, is fairness even a biblical value? Now, I'm going to spend a little time today walking through some scriptures and showing you the answer, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time arguing this one. Fairness is not a biblical value. When we begin to claim fairness, we're claiming a value that I don't even think is biblical. It, just take this story, for example. If this, in this story, if God took the value of fairness and held and clung, t clung tight to it, what would happen? Paul would be released. Why? Because it was fair. It was unfair to send him to Rome. It was fair to release him. However, God ignored fairness for the sake of the gospel. Here's what I mean. Take a go, go left in your Bible. Chapter 23, verse 11 says this. Jesus tells Paul these words. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem... You must also testify in Rome. So God's will for Paul was that Paul would go to Rome on trial to testify about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So God willingly sets aside fairness, ignores fairness, so that the gospel can go to Rome. Now I love this. For the sake of the evangelism of the world, God chooses to ignore fairness. 
23.11, Jesus says you're going to Rome. You go all the way back. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus tells us that we're to be his witnesses, that the Spirit will give us power, that we would be his witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So God says, look, I don't really care about fairness. I care more about, my, about his will. God's, God's pursuit of being fair is, is null and void. It does not matter. His pursuit of his will to make known the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ is ultimately what's most important. And so for us to begin to battle about fairness, God's going, it, life's not fair. And it shouldn't be. Here's the point. Here's what we're going to talk about this morning is this. Fairness is not a biblical value because fairness contradicts God's will. It contradicts God's will. God's will is to reveal to mankind his mercy and his grace. And so in order to do that, God will forsake fairness. And Paul, over and over again, Paul, Paul is, it has the right, he can claim fairness that it's not fair that he's being tried the way he's tried. It's not fair that he's being sent to Rome. And over and over again, Paul understands that his pursuit of Jesus and the gospel has nothing to do with fairness. In fact, I think when we go, hey, God, life's not fair. I think God goes, finally, you get it. Now, let's move on. Lesson one, right? Now, I want to make sure we're all talking about the same words and vocabulary. So let me just give you a couple of definitions. When we talk about fairness, here's what fairness is. Fairness is when you get what you deserve when you deserve it, right? When you were a little kid and you'd backtalk your daddy and he'd pull the belt off and whip you, you got what you deserved. And if you didn't, we all know. And in fact, there are sometimes I'm in conversations where I feel the urge to whip somebody and go, you didn't get beat as a kid, I want to beat you now, right? When we we talk about fairness, right? Notice the teenagers are never the ones clapping on that one. What's up with that, guys? Right? And so fairness is what you get, what you get, what you deserve when you deserve it. Now, we usually don't talk about fairness unless it benefits us. Right? So we will talk about fairness if we think the IRS, is tax season's coming, right? If we think the IRS takes too much money, we will go, that's not fair. They took too much money. We have, nobody in here has probably ever called the IRS and go, you know, I don't feel like I'm giving enough to the government. But can I give you some more? Right? We only want to claim fairness when it benefits us. The problem is, is that fairness, to be fair, you got to get what you deserve, no matter whether it's good for you or bad for you. That's fairness. Mercy, mercy is when you don't get what you deserve when you deserve it. Right? So you deserve it, you deserve some punishment, but you don't get it, right? So if, I'll, I'll just confess about my driving. Um, I tend to drive 5 to 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, um, I know it's wrong. I'm just confessing. Just confess your sins one to another. You might be healed. I'm trying to get some healing here. And I will have the tendency, the way I drive, um, is I drive as close as I can get to the car in front of me. Like, I want to be about a second away from death, and then I'll get over. And my wife all the time tells me, that's not how you're supposed to drive. You're not in South Georgia anymore. There are multiple lanes here, Ryan. Oh, that's what those are. And so she goes, like, it's not safe for the kids. It's not safe. I mean, it's not safe for me. Like, just, so I'm learning to drive in the city. But right now, I still drive up to the back of somebody, and I pill around them, right? So let's say I'm going 5 or 10 under, and I come up to a group of cars that's going 5 to 10 under, okay? That irks me. I think there's something wrong with them. So what do I do? Well, now that I know how you can use the other lanes, I whip it over, and I go flying by. And I will go flying by about 5 or 10 over, over and I, almost every time I'll realize, uh-oh, police car leading that pack, Right? Now, mercy is when you fly past the police car and he just goes, whoop, whoop, and that tells you to slow down. Why? What do you deserve? Woo, woo, and over to the side of the road, paying a ticket. That's what you deserve, right? Grace. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve, knowing that you could never deserve it, right? It's as if you walked in this morning and I said, hey, everybody reach underneath your chair. There's a million-dollar envelope under everybody's chair. Don't do it. This isn't Oprah. It's not going to happen, right? But if you, re- you came here, sat down, and pulled a million dollars out from underneath your chair, did you deserve it? No. No, not one of you deserved it, right? Nobody deserved it. My wife may be for putting up with me, but for the rest of you guys, you don't deserve it. That's what grace is. It's when you get something that you never could deserve. Now, let me make sure we all are tracking with these three words. I got a little story. I got a little example from my uh, younger days. I think this morning is going to be a lot of confessions from my driving past, okay? When I was, here's what I mean. When I was 20 years old, I uh, traveled around and spoke at different camps and retreats and events. That was my job. During the spring, during the fall, I worked for the football team at Georgia. And then during the spring and the summer, I would just travel and preach all around the southeast. It's actually 
how I ended up in Jacksonville. I, I uh, preached a few times at Beach United Methodist on some weekends, and then they ended up hiring me. So I'm traveling from Athens, Georgia to Augusta. I was 20 years old. I drove a, a Chevy S10, right? If you don't know what that is, like, it's just a small truck. When I got in it, it was full, right? And it was, oh, good, no room, right? I mean, I had to put my book bag in the truck bed because it wouldn't fit and me. I had to pick between my books or me, right? So I'm driving to Augusta. I pick up a friend in Elberton, Georgia, the granite capital of the world. His name's Casey. He's kind of like me, but fluffier. You know what I mean? That's the nicest way to say it. And so when he gets in the car, it's literally like, Casey, I need you to push the cruise control because if I push the cruise control, I'm going to inappropriately touch you. So can you just... Right, so it's tight. We're I twenty. We're we're driving as hard as we can drive. We had to go and print MapQuest. Right, anybody remember you have to print the directions? Teenagers, there used to be a day where you would have to go and print off directions, and it's not as bad as it sounds because there was a day even older than my day when you had to drive with a six foot map in the front seat, and that's also the same day they used to didn't buckle kids in. That's not a good safe combination, right? Mom and dad in the front with six foot map, and I don't think I ever buckled in, right? So I was driving MapQuest, Casey goes five miles to the exit, four miles, three miles, two miles. The thing about MapQuest, teenagers, is that there's no voice yelling at you. There's not like a little Australian lady go, turn now or I'll kill you, right? There's not, that lady's not there, right? So I drive past the exit, boom, past it. There's two miles to the next exit. I'm driving 75 miles per hour, two miles at 75 miles per hour. Not that far. However, I really wanted to make sure I got to the place early enough to sit down, to read, to pray, to rest a little bit before I taught that night. So what do I do? Well, they got this big median right there, right? Pull it down in the median. I get halfway through the median. Oh, I'm stuck. I'm as stuck as you can be, right? Just stuck, stuck. So I tell Casey, Casey, hop out. Because sometimes if you hop on the back of, a, of the bumper tailgate, you can get enough traction on the wheels and you can pull out. Casey, hop out. He hops out. Oh, now we're stucker. And Casey is as muddy as it can get. He can't ride with me now. He's got to walk home, all right? I'm not getting in my car, right? Next thing I know, this big F-350 comes driving by. It's, got, it's beautiful Georgia red. It's got a Georgia Bulldogs license plate on the front. I think the Lord has come himself, right? And so he pulls over. He's got a gooseneck trailer on the back. He backs the trailer in. His plan is to tie my truck to the trailer and pull us out. The next thing I know, we're all three stuck. The, the, the F-350, the trailer, the S-10, Fluffy, Muddy, Casey, and myself all stuck. He gets out, and I think, okay, Georgia fan, not a Georgia grad. Not even sure if he graduated from high school at this point. The so Bubba hops out and he goes, he goes, we're stuck. I'm like, yeah, thanks, Bubba. We're stuck. Who's next? Woo, woo. Sheriff, county, right, county, sheriff, deputy hops out. At this point, I'm thinking, what's fair? What's fair? A ticket? Call my mama? Tell me what I did? Right? Call a tow truck? Make me pay for it to get everybody out? Lecture me? Put points on my license? I'm thinking, oh, man. He gets out of the car? straightens his hat. He's got one of those mustaches, you know, that like only looks okay with a, with a uniform. <laughs> like if you saw him without the uniform, you'd think, come on kids, let's, let's go to the other side of the street. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> All right. He straightens that hat up. Right. And he walks out two big steps, puts his fingers in his belly and says, well, boys, y'all reckon y'all are stuck? <laughs> well, here's your sign. Like, how do you respond? Like, I really want to tell him, no, we're just here tailgating. We're here early for the master's. Right, I don't know what to do. And then I, I'm just going, dear Lord, please let him have, not kill me for you know, being in the median. This can't be legal. And then he goes, well, has y'all tried to get her out yet? Yeah, that's why he's stuck. Now we're all stuck. And he, and he got any more help for us? And he, he did. He had some more help. He looked at me and said, well, son, you don't know. It's been raining like cats and dogs here for like three days. Ain't no way you're getting that truck out like that. Thanks. <laughs> I figured that one out on my own. I'm thinking, what do I do? A few minutes later... Uh, another buddy comes by with another truck and a chain, right? This time we're going to chain the truck instead of back them all down into the ditch. He chains, he pulls the F-350 out. He pulls me out facing in the right direction. Thank you, Jesus, right? I'm going to be on time. He leaves, the F-350 leaves. It's just me there and an officer mustache. And we're looking at each other and I'm thinking, here it is. Like, this is the moment of truth. He's about to whoop me with a lecture He's about to give me a, the biggest ticket I've ever seen. He's about to make me pay for the, 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 the ruts that are now in the median. He goes, well, boy, I guess I'll let you go. That's mercy, right? That is mercy. I deserve tickets, and I got mercy. And he was such a good officer, he gave me grace. He said, now, son, next time you try this, 
kid you not. Next time you try this, here's what I want you to do. 45 degree angle, step on the gas. When you get halfway into the ditch, turn the wheel, let off the gas. When your tires get behind you, which I'm thinking, I think they're always behind me. When your tires get behind you, step on the gas, get ready, asphalt's coming. (laughs) Thank you, right? So here's the deal. Next time you and I miss an exit, I'll teach you what the officer taught me. 45 degrees, gun it, let the tires slide around and get ready because asphalt's coming, right? Hey, what, 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 here's the truth. What was fair in that is that I got tickets and I got insurance would climb higher and points on my license. And not only did he give me mercy and not giving me a ticket, that man gave me grace and taught me something I did not deserve. Right? Now, here's what I love about fairness, about mercy, and about grace. It is as old as the, as the earth is. That mercy and grace are in the character of God and have been present from, from even before creation. See, I love this picture in, in Genesis chapter 2. And you can go ahead and turn there. I'm going to read it and it'll be on the screen too. So there are plenty of opportunities to hear it. Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. Don't miss this. This is, this is pretty important. The name of the first is the Pishon, which is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedlam and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. And it's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the, man, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the name of the fourth river is the Euphrates. So I want you to get this. God puts Adam in a place where the river that nourished that land, its tributaries are the four rivers that we read about in world geography. Like civilization was formed on the tributaries of the river that fed the garden that God placed Adam in. So, so we tend to think of the Garden of Eden. We can, we can read this story as if God, like Adam was in like a four-by-four four box with a tree of, of life and the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil. And God said, here's two options. Don't eat one. Verse 15, the Lord took man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. So God puts Adam in, a, in, a, in an environment that is highly successful. Big river that has tributaries that becomes four rivers. So big, luscious, gloriously big garden. Full of fruit. Full of fruit. Full of trees. And God says, God says, look, there's a tree of life. Have at it. Eat at the tree of eternal life. Eat at all the other trees. Thousands and thousands of options. God gives Man, thousands of opportunities to be successful. But then he says this, But the one tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that that you eat of it you shall surely die. In the day that you eat of it you should surely die. You see, it was not that God was setting up Adam to fail. Actually, God was setting up Adam to be very, very successful forever. But God says, you don't want this tree. It is not good for you. And so what happens, if you know the rest of the story, is Adam and Eve are in the garden one day. And Satan, the serpent, comes by. And he says, did God really tell you you shouldn't eat of that tree? You see, Satan's attack from day one and still is not to convince you of something you've never heard of, but to try to convince you that the truth of God is not worth your trust. So Satan rolls in and goes, look, I don't think God's trustworthy. I think you should try it. And then Adam and Eve, what do they do? They take the fruit off. They're both there, right? Men, quit trying to blame Eve, right? Both Adam and Eve were there. They take the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they sin. They do the one thing God told them not to do. They do it. Now, what is fair in this moment? Well, verse 17 said, the day you eat of it, you should surely die. What's fair in that moment is that in that moment, they should die. But what happens? Well, verse, not, verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord. Was, God was walking towards them in the garden of the cool of the day. 
Then the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to them, saying, Where are you? God says, Where are you? What was fair was the moment they ate from that fruit for God to go, What's fair? What you deserve is death in this moment. But God brings mercy. What does that look like? He comes looking for them. Instead of passing judgment, he withholds the judgment that they deserve. He does not kill them instantly. He does not destroy humanity. But he comes into the garden pursuing them, saying, where are you? And every single one of us that stand and sit in this room today, we know one thing. God has extended his mercy to us from day one, Because see, all of us are from the line of Adam. We are all wretched, black-hearted sinners. From the very first day, the very first time we breathe, we are already enemies of God, rebellious to him. And we choose to do the things that are against the perfect will of God. And God gives us mercy. How do I know this? We're all standing, sitting, breathing, and we have life. That God has withheld the punishment for our sin. We have not died yet. That he's withholding the punishment. I love this. He goes in and then he gives Satan a curse. He, he gives Eve a curse, right? Pregnancy. You can blame, women, you can blame Eve for that. Go ahead. We'll all blame her for that. All right. And then he, he tells Adam, like, you're going to have to, you're going to have to do a lot of farming and working, right? That's why we live in Florida. Every time I cut my grass, it's like, it's January and I'm still cutting my grass like twice a week and I'm just cussing Adam while I do it, right? All right. So then he gets to the end of the kind of the punishment. He gets to the end of his speech and then verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. What was the punishment for the sin, for eating from the tree? Death, right? Grace is this. Grace is giving to Adam and Eve what they don't deserve and could never deserve. So what does God do? God takes the sin, he puts it on the animal, he spills the blood of an animal and takes the skin of that animal and covers their shame and covers their sin. The first time we see the gospel is in Genesis chapter 3 where God goes, blood will be spilt to cover your sin. That's grace. Let's keep going. Genesis chapter 6, I promise we're not going to take every chapter of Genesis, but we need to do a little work here to understand why fairness has never been a biblical value. Chapter 6, verse 1, when man began to multiply the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of the men were attractive and they took, their, took them as wives as they, as they chose. So here's what's happening. Um, we get to, we're about to get to the story of Noah. Um, man has begun to multiply, to produce. They're having uh, beautiful daughters and there's marriage and there's, there's the, the subduing and multiplying. It's all working. Verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth, and it grieved his heart. So the Lord God said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of land, man and animals, and creepy things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Six chapters into the story of humanity, God looks down at humanity. It's already so evil. Every human walking the face of the earth is already an enemy of God. They're just thinking and behaving evilly compared to what God's plan for them was. And God is grieved. He's hurt. He's looking at humanity going, I don't even know why I created them. Now, what's fair? Well, God is God, and he realizes that it is fair for the wrath of God to be on his enemies. And humanity, when sinning and serving ourselves, have placed ourselves as the enemy of God. So God has the right, it is fair for him to look down and go, you know what, my enemies deserve my wrath. But what does he do? He doesn't give them his wrath. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That God found mercy that he should have wiped out humanity, but he did not. Instead, he said, look, I have found favor in Noah. Now, here's the truth. Noah was, was like no righteous hero of heroes, right? For God to find favor in him, God had to have graciously put favor on him. So God should have, could have, had all the rights to wipe out humanity as an as a enemy combatant. He had the right to extend his wrath. But he chooses mercy. Once again, forsakes fairness. It's not fair that any human 
would get to survive God's wrath. But God chooses mercy. Noah and his people build a boat, his family. They put animals on it. They boat around. They go on a cruise. The, crew, the, the waters subside. The boat lands. He gets out. God makes a covenant with Noah and says, look, I will never again flood the earth. He gives them the rainbow. In fact, every time we see the rainbow, it reminds us that God's covenant with Noah is that he will not flood the earth again. And I, and I want to I pull out one verse real quick before we move on. It, it, verse 20 of, of, Exodus, of Genesis chapter 9. So Noah received the covenant of grace for all of humanity, that God is never again going to flood the earth. And it's only a few verses later that we read this. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine. Now, if you stop there, we're all okay, right? A little wine is okay, but here's where it goes. And he became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. That's Old Testament that says Noah, he built a vineyard, and he got some wine, and he got naked drunk. Like the kind of drunk that clothes disappeared, right? And then his oldest, his older, his, one of his sons, Ham, right? I'm sure he called him Hambone. Ham comes in, sees him naked, has, it brings shame on Noah. And Noah, Noah wakes up and starts, he curses his, Ham's offspring. So I want you to see this very importantly. God's grace and God's mercy is not dependent upon our goodness. It's dependent upon his goodness. Because if it was dependent upon our goodness, we could not earn it or deserve it. Fairness would not bring us any blessing from God. It would just bring condemnation. So God, in his goodness and his grace, looks down on Noah and extends grace and mercy. Thank God fairness is not a biblical value. One more Old Testament example, and then we'll move back to the New Testament. Exodus chapter 20. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, right? The number one commandment is what? Don't have any other gods before me. But all right, Moses then is on his way back. And in Exodus chapter 32, before Moses can even get back to the people, the people go to Aaron and go, here's all our gold earrings and rings and necklaces and and everything. Can we melt them down and make a golden calf that we can worship? So Aaron crumbles to the pressure of the people and builds a a golden calf. And the people of Israel begin to worship. Exodus chapter 32, verse 7 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. To which if I'm Moses, I'm going to look at God and go, You want me to go get my people? That I, God, you gave me those people. Like, you gave me the jacked up people. And God goes, Go get, those, go get your people. God's so furious, he doesn't even want to be his own people. He gives them to Moses. Verse 8, They turned aside quickly out of the way that I've commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it. It's sacrificed to it, and they've said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make you a great nation. Here's what God tells Moses. God looks at Moses and says, this is stiff-necked people. I brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and they've already forsaken me and started worshiping a, an idol, a golden calf. Now, what's fair? In this moment, it is fair for God to burn hot with jealousy and consume his people. Absolutely fair. But Moses goes to God and begins to plead because Moses knows that God is a God of mercy. He pleads, he goes, God, don't do it. These are your people. You delivered them for Egypt. It saved them for the sake of your name. So the whole world would look at Israel and go, those are God's people. God, do they deserve it? Yes. But let's not, let's God, give them mercy. Verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So Moses goes to God and goes, God, it is fair for you to consume them. But would you be a God of mercy? Would you forsake fairness for mercy? And God goes, yes. Now, I want you to hear this. Mercy is not a get out of jail free without a scratch card. Right? Here's what I mean. In this text, when Moses gets back down the hill, he burns the calf and puts the sulfur and the gold, the gold, the burnt gold in cups of water and passes the cups around to the nation of Israel and says, drink it. And don't forget how disgusting it tastes. Why? Because Moses wanted the people to know God's given you mercy, but your sin is still disgusting. 
And then a few verses later, Moses calls the Levites and says, hey, grab your sword. Anybody who's out there that still hasn't repented, I want you to go kill them. And the Levites go out and kill 3,000 people. And then before the chapter ends, God sends a plague. Why? Because mercy is the withholding of the full punishment. But God, in his mercy, is so good that he would send and allow things to happen to us that would make us stomach just sick. Why? Because God wants us to know that sin is disgusting. It is sick. It hurts us. It harms us. To remove all of that is not wise. Not wise. Now, if my daughter went to walk across the street, I would grab her before she walked out into a car. Right? But I'd probably give her a whooping. Why? Because I want her to know I saved you from a great pain, but I don't want you to forget that there is pain in life. That God loves us so much that he would extend mercy that we would not, not take on the full wrath of, of, of the punishment of death, but that we would taste and see that sin is painful. So God lets that happen. In chapter 33, the Lord tells Moses, get up and go. Where is he taking them? God tells Moses, get up, take the people to the promised land that I told you about. In verse 3 of chapter 33, God says this, Go up to land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. What's God saying? God said, Moses, I'm still not really happy with them. I want to backhand the whole nation of Israel. But because God is a God of grace, he says, take the nation of Israel, get up and go. Go where? Go to a land that you don't deserve. Go to a place of life that you don't deserve because God is good. All right, we need a New Testament example before we wrap this thing up. Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. So here's what's happening. Here's where we're at in Luke chapter 23. Um, the, The Jewish council has already pulled together. They've already arrested Jesus They've already brought him to uh, some unfair, illegal trials. They've already walked him through some trials through the night. And now they are taking him to Pilate because they realize they don't have the ability to condemn him, but they're going to get Pilate to do it. Chapter 23 of Luke. The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching all throughout Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. So here's what happens. Pilate brings Jesus before him. Very similar to the trial that Paul was going through. The Jewish leaders are accusing Jesus of, you know, of causing riots and, and, up and uh, like turning over the temple and messing up uh, what is considered the order of the day. And Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus says, you say I am. Basically, Jesus says, I, I'm not going to get myself in trouble here. You're the one who said I was a king. They're the ones who said I was a king. So I might be a king if everybody's telling me that I'm a king. I might be a king. So he hears that he's from Galilee. And what does he do? He sends him to King Herod. Remember King Agrippa in Acts is the, is the king of, of that Galilean region. Well, his great-granddad was King Herod. So King Herod is now uh, is the king of that region. So Pilate sends Jesus to that region and sends him to Herod. And Herod says, look, I, I can't figure out anything that's wrong with him either. Herod sends him back to Pilate. Pilate tries him again, can't figure out anything with, to do with him. It, what, there, he's done nothing wrong. In fact, in verse... 14, Pilate says, I did not find this man guilty of any charge against him. Neither did Herod. Verse 18. But they all cried out, away with him. The same exact declaration that was made of Paul. Get him off the face of the earth. But this is the first time it was made. The second time is when they're talking about Paul. Get him off. Kill him. Get rid of him. Away with him and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no guilt in him deserving death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were more urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their, the man, that their demand should be granted. He released the man 
from who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and from whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So the, the crowd begins to cry, give us Barabbas, kill Jesus. Is that fair? No. Jesus was perfect, had never broke law of man or law of God. Perfect. It was not fair that he would die at all. It's not fair at all. And yet in this situation, God sets aside fairness. Why? Because his will for mercy and grace is far greater and far better than fairness. See, what happens is Barabbas, whose name is son of the father. That's what Barabbas means. Bar Abba. Son of the father. When his mom and dad named him years and years before, they didn't know Barabbas was going to grow up and be a murderer, to be a thief, to be the leader of riots. They named him son of the father. And then in this miraculous story, the son of the father is released. And then the son of God takes his place. And they take Jesus, they put him on a cross, they kill him, they put him in a grave. And then because of God's mercy and grace, he comes out of the grave victorious over sin and death. You see, Jesus forsook fairness so that the son of the father, Barabbas, would have life. Romans 5 tells us that there's a lineage of Adam we're all born into, we're all born into sin. And that Christ came to give us a new lineage. That we would forsake that Adam being our father and now God would be our father through Jesus Christ. See, here's what I love about the truth of this story. This whole story from the beginning, from Genesis to the end in Revelation. It is not a story about fairness, which for me and for you is really, really good. See, here's the thing about fairness. Before our actions could save us, they, would, they condemn us. Before your religiosity, before your works, before your deeds can save you, they've already condemned you. You see, Paul was a terrorist before he was a missionary. And God didn't hold that against him. Instead, forsook fairness for grace and mercy. For me and you, we were enemies of God before we were ever invited to be family of God. And God forsakes fairness for the sake of the gospel. But there's no amount of good. Here's how the Bible says it. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says it this way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. It's an archery term that means to miss the bullseye, to miss the mark. And in archery, if I gave you a dozen arrows, and the first, the first arrow, you miss the mark. You may, maybe just barely. You just barely miss the bullseye. And then I give you arrows for the rest of your life, just over and over again, for the rest of your life, bullseye, 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 bullseye. The problem is, is that you can never be perfect because you missed once. And so what this says about our actions is you and I have missed the mark of God. Whether in word, deed, thought, or action, we have missed the perfect, holy, pure will of God. We would all would agree with that. And if you don't, then you're a liar and boom, you're in, right? So we have all missed the mark of perfection. And, and because of that, we've missed the glory of God, which means this. We miss the presence, renowned majesty of God. We miss God's presence because we are imperfect. Right? It gets worse. It's going to get better at the end, but it gets worse right now. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. In other words, your works can't save you because you can't be perfect. In fact, what your works do is give you the very thing that's fair, death. And not just you die when you're like 100 years old. I'm talking about spiritual death. I'm talking about eternity in hell. I'm talking about the rest of your, of your eternity separated from the mercy and love and grace of God. Separated from that. Why? Because your death, go all the way back to Genesis, if you do what I tell you not to do, if we do anything against the will and character of God, surely that day we will die. And the fact that you and I sit here today is a picture of God's mercy. In fact, Romans 5, 8 goes on to say this, that why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You and I deserved death. What did we get? We got Christ on a cross. It's not fair. It's good. It's not fair. It's grace. It's not fair. It's mercy. Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us. The wages of sin is death. 
The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And God showed his love for us in the fact that while we were still sinning, he offered that free gift. And here's, here's how we receive it. Romans 10, 9 through 13. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. But if you believe in your heart, in other words, if you believe, you know, I believe this Bible is true, that I'm a sinner, that I've missed the presence of God, that the wages I've earned is death, but God has given me a free gift, that even when I was sinning, Christ went to the cross. So if you confess, if you cry out, if you state that I believe this, and in your heart, if you trust it, if you surrender to it, then you will be saved. And that's not fair at all. Here's what I'm telling you salvation is. Salvation is you realize I can't save myself, therefore I cry out and surrender that Christ would save me. See, the the deal, that's grace, not fairness. That's grace, not fairness. Verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who, believe, who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's mercy. Fairness, you and I deserve guilt, shame, and death. What do we get? Well, if we call in his name, we begin to, that, that mercy, we don't get put to shame. We don't get put to death. We don't get trotted under the wrath of God. Instead, we are moving into relationship with him. Verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. That's the picture of grace. That's the picture. What is fair is that you and I deserve death. But what grace is, is that not only does God come and pardon our sin, like that would be good enough if God just says you get off I'm going to pardon your sin. You're no longer guilty of death. But what God does in grace is gives us what we can never deserve. He moves us from guilty, deserving of death. He pardons our sin. And in fact, Jesus takes our death to the cross. And we move from pardon to family. That's the gospel. That's the grace of Jesus Christ. That we would move from an enemy of God to an heir of God. That we would move from a a rebel fighting against the cause of God to part of his family. That God would not just call us forgiven, not just call us acquitted, but he would call us son and daughter. That when he looks on us, what he sees is the righteousness of Christ that was given to us through the cross. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is an Easy verse to dissect for you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's what I'm going to do in just a second. I'm going to ask if you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus. I'm going to ask you to do something very bold. And in just a second, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. And here's why. Here's what this verse means. Anyone, everyone, all of us have sinned. All of us have been extended the grace, the mercy of God. Everyone has extended the grace of God. But what do we do to to receive the grace? We have to call on it. We have to cry out. What it's saying is those of you who would cry out, like a little kid reaching up to their mom or dad going, save me, save me. What we have to do as humans is say, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And so I'm going to cry out on the name of the Lord. I'm going to profess him as my Lord and Savior. Is it fair? Absolutely not. It's gracious. You see, for the sake of the gospel, for you, God forsook fairness a long time ago. Because his will of mercy and grace is better for us. So I want to ask you right now, if you're ready today to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, would you just stand to your feet? Just right where you're at. Hey, I'm ready. I've been, I'm, the Holy Spirit's been wooing me. I'm right, ready right now. I want to stand and I want to declare Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Come on. Your salvation is not dependent on my clock, but I'm going to give you three seconds. Three, two, one. Come on. All right, I see, I see several of you, and those of you who are standing up, I, here's what I want you to do. 
Right? So it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord. Standing up doesn't save you. What saves you is this. That you tell your heavenly Father, God. You just tell him what you just told us. I surrender. I can't do it. I need a Savior. And you're just going to do it right there. You just tell God right now. If you mess up the words, he knows what you mean. He gave you the words to say. You just tell him right now. And in just a second, we're gonna, all of us are going to stand and we're going to sing a song. And what I want to invite each of you to do is just while we're singing, take your loved ones and go to the Connect Center. We've got a gift for you. We've got some people back there, some deacons, some volunteers, some serve staff that love you, that want to hug you and just say, hey, welcome to the family. And they just want to help you begin to walk out this free gift of salvation. Okay? Here's what I want to invite the rest of us to do. I want you to join them. Just to stand with me. If you would just even say, hey, I'm just... I'm just going to receive God's mercy. I'm not ready to surrender my life to him, but I'm going to, I'm going to receive his mercy right now. Many of you have already surrendered your life to Jesus. I'm going to beg you to stand and great. We're going to respond to the gospel, to the truth that life is not fair. We're going to respond by graciously giving. Right? We don't pass the plate because we don't want you to think we're taking tips, but we want you to graciously give at the boxes. We want you to rush to the front and, and, and get to the altar and pray and thank God for his grace. Thank God for his mercy. For those of you who stood up, we want you to go to the Connect Center. And if you didn't stand up, but you're ready, I told you, your salvation is not on my clock. You go whenever you want to go, right now. You do it right where you're at. But pray with me, and we're going to respond to the truth that God is full of grace, not fairness. God, we love you, and God, thank you so much that you love us first. That even while we were sinning, Christ died for us. That Christ's death was the proactive move of you to us. You were not waiting for us to get good enough to save us, but you knew from day one if we were basing basing our whole salvation on our works, our works have already condemned us. What is fair is death, but what is gracious is life, and you give life. So God, we respond saying, Alleluia, praise be to you and you alone. And God, I pray even right now as we respond, you would stir in some hearts, some people who, who didn't stand up, but they know that you're calling them to surrender their life to Jesus, that even in this moment, they would just go ahead and go to the Connect Center. They'd come down front, they'd grab a deacon or a staff, and they just proclaim, I'm in, I'm surrendered, I'm in. And God, as we respond, we just pray that your name would be blessed, that you would be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen.